Hey, it's Chris, the Supply Chain Doctor and host of Supply Chain is Boring, bringing insight into the history of supply chain management and exposing you to some of the industry's thought leaders and driving forces. In part one of this two-part series, we sat down with warehouse technology industry veteran Bruce Welty to learn about his career and success tips for starting a business. It all sounds pretty boring, so let's see if Bruce can prove me wrong. Bruce, I learned about you through my network. A few of my colleagues from the Boston area worked for Kiva, and, and they told me about you. And then in an exchange on LinkedIn, you mentioned, and I'm going to quote you on this, that sure, supply chain is boring, except for the fact that five of the top 10 richest people in the world made their money in it. And we'll, we'll come back to that later. And also, you're probably the most uh, interviewed or documented person I've had on this show. I'm going to say you're the, you're the Steve Jobs of Warehouse Robotics, from what I can tell. I look forward to learning more about Bruce, the person, and your perspective on the future of supply chain management in these interviews. Uh, thanks, Chris. Thanks for the opportunity. Bruce, let's, let's start with your early days. You know, where, where did you grow up, and were there any significant life experiences that kind of shaped your, your worldview? Well, I grew up in um, the Midwest in Minneapolis. My family was, you know, sort of middle class, upper middle class. My, my dad was in, I believe it or not, supply chain at Honeywell, and my um, grandfather was a postal worker. So I didn't really, you know, pay attention much to business. I didn't really think too much about it. So it wasn't like I aspired to, to do what they did, but, you know, apparently some of it rubbed off on me. I uh, moved to Massachusetts when I was 15 years old, quite reluctantly, and um, was fortunate enough to go to a very good school out here in uh, Concord, Massachusetts. And I live there now, or live here now. And I went to college out in Colorado, studied math, more because it was, of all the subjects, it was the easiest one for me. I don't mean to imply that I'm a math genius, but it certainly was something that I found easier than other things. And uh, ultimately, I got a, a, I studied for business school at Boston College, but I didn't graduate. But I spent a few years there studying, you know, just I managed an MBA program. I sort of got involved in supply chain as a programmer. Again, that was just something I picked up because I have a, my, math, my, my math background. And again, I'm, I'm not going to even claim to being that great a programmer, but I learned enough in my early days of programming to understand what computers could and couldn't do. And that was one of the things that really informed everything in my life from this point forward. Computers have become much more capable, but, and you know, we have now robots, which are kind of mobile computers that can move themselves around. But uh, in general, I think the thing that really informed my thinking there was, you know, how I can use a computer to to accomplish tasks. So that's kind of how I set up for this business. I unfortunately didn't know a whole lot about, you know, how to construct a good business model. That took me many, many years to do. And it's particularly hard to, to do good business models in supply chain. So I spent a lot of time, you know, in the warehouse management business, first just working for a big consulting company that ultimately was acquired by Coopers and Librand. And we were sort of programmers for dollars. But I ended up uh, leading the warehouse management practice there and then spun that out as a separate company and continued on with that, which ultimately became a company called All Points. And that was my first real experience as an uh, entrepreneur. Our first big customer was Toys R Us 
in um, the late 80s. At that time, you know, we were using mini computers from Digital Equipment Corporation, and the, the battles were being fought out between the big three, you know, HP, IBM, and digital. And software was an afterthought. And the only people that could afford to do warehouse management systems were these really big corporations, you know, the Fortune 500, because it would sort of cost you $10 million to get in the hardware and $10 million to get in the software. And if it's a $20 million thing, then you're just not going to get any startups investing that kind of money. So all of our clients were large and our problems were big. And they were all very customized and complicated. And I thought it was a great, great business. And we grew all points to, I don't know, maybe 80 people and ultimately sold it to the biggest WMS company in this space, a company called EXE Technologies. And that was right around 2000. So that was a 13-year stint for me. Um, but I learned a lot about warehouses, too much actually, because I think if you're a WMS guy, you know more about warehouse management systems than um, anybody else in the whole warehouse. I mean, you know more about what happens in the warehouse, the operations of the warehouse than uh, anybody else, because you have to solve all the nasty little problems and your software has to deal with thousands and thousands of exceptions. So you're really kind of a like the doctor or the surgeon in the hospital something is wrong, they come to you. And we built a team of people. A lot of those guys are still in my life. You know, they're sort of the guys that founded the subsequent businesses that we built. So I didn't do any of this alone. Uh, I happened to have had a business partner named Michael Johnson who was way smarter than me. And um, we worked together sort of, I always called it the, I did the up and out stuff and he did the down and in stuff. I would do the things around um, strategy and, hiring and getting customers and he would do everything related to getting the systems to work and hiring the teams and so on. So uh, he's quite a competent fellow and um, we've been very successful together as a partnership. You know, we, I, spent, I think I spent more time with him than anyone else on the planet and uh, we still get along great to, even to this day. So that's kind of the setup for uh, the days of up to 2000 which I think is when things really started to get interesting in the supply chain. You mentioned Coopers and Libran. That Were you of the Systicon organization? I know they, weren't they associated with Systicon as well? They were. We were um, more just a generic, generic IT group when we had okay. specialties. We became actually part of uh, Coopers. Okay, I got it. Yeah, I just knew they had some great, from Jim Apple, John White, those types of people came from there as well. So great organization. And then EXE, that used to be Dallas Systems. Yeah. Yeah, they were uh, bigger than Manhattan the day they acquired us, and then um, the business actually didn't do very well after that. There was uh, some mistakes they made, and the business kind of ultimately disappeared, and a bunch of other companies in their port in the, the owner's portfolio, there was a VC that owned them, and he merged a couple of companies together, and then ultimately sold it to, um, I think it was Infor. It's funny how you, you meet all these people over the years, and everybody kind of mixes and matches and goes off in these various organizations. One thing that came out of that acquisition of us, though, was I learned that there's a whole game being played around uh, how to uh, monetize companies and how to make bit pieces together and capitalize them. And I became very interested in that. So right after I sold my company, I, I called up a private equity firm and I asked them if I could come work with them. And I joined them as a what they call an executive in residence. You're sort of a subject matter expert. And that ultimately led us to where we are today because uh, I'm still partners with those guys and 
they invested in all of our companies and our spin-outs and our recapitalizations and did a, a whole bunch of things for us. So there have been many days in my life when what looked like maybe not a good situation turned out to be a very good situation. EXE didn't do well. We were stockholders in EXE, so we lost a lot of value there. But it introduced me to the concept of uh, sort of private equity and venture capital. And and then um, that drove me into thinking about companies differently. It's funny, um, as we were doing our WMSs, we, we got into the e-commerce game early. And one day, this is one of those defining moments in my life. One, one day I was on an airplane and I was raising money for all points and I was sat down next to a guy. I still remember his name. It was, his name was Paul Goodrich. You know, we started chatting on the plane and found out he was a venture capitalist and he owned a company out of Seattle called Madrona. And we were together for, you know, six hours and we spent that whole time. We were flying from Seattle to Boston and we spent that whole time discussing businesses and he had just made an investment in a company called Amazon. He was one of the original investors in Amazon. And it was kind of a, a rude awakening for me because he was basically telling me that I was barking up the wrong tree. And he said it nicely, of course, but he said, you know, we just invested in this little company that sells books and they're growing like crazy. He said, I've never seen growth, anything like it. And the guy who runs it, you know, I wouldn't consider him to be a superstar businessman. He's just this, you know, a guy who had an idea and, you know, people just love it. And then um, he said to me, you know, you seem like a pretty smart guy, but, you know, your business model isn't so good. What you're doing isn't leverageable. I'm not sure it's a need. You know, people don't necessarily have to have it. You know, it's very customized for every customer. It's not a particularly big market. And he kept listing all these things to me about what was wrong with my business and I kind of got off the plane thinking to myself, well, you know, I'll have to pay attention to this and think a little harder. And we ended up getting a deal with a company called drugstore.com doing their warehousing. And drugstore was part of, you know, the Seattle investment cohort, which included, you know, the guy that founded Starbucks. And um, I think Melinda Gates was on the board. And a lot of the people were sort of from that same world and the Seattle world. And I remember calling up Paul, he wasn't going to invest in my company, but I made a connection there that I kept up for many, many years. And I could just call this guy and ask him questions. He's just, I'm sure he's just made an absolute fortune. The guy he was talking about, of course, was Bezos. So anyway, I kept thinking about that, is how do we find the thing in supply chain that's just something that everybody has to have and is highly leverageable and grows like crazy. And I came to the conclusion that it's very hard to find those kinds of businesses, but it's so much easier if you do. So that was uh, something I kept thinking about as I was going into uh, the private equity business, just to try to find that kind of business. So it, if you think about the supply chain in general, it goes way back to the days of, you know, well, it's one of the oldest businesses in the world. And there were some really pivotal moments. You know, we the guy who invented containers that go on container ships, he really standardized something that was otherwise really quite complicated. And that just changed the world. And, and then we had barcodes added in the 70s. So a lot of people can't imagine the world without barcodes. But, you know, when barcodes first came out, people were 
very reluctant to use them. And it took a long time for them to take off, but now you can't buy anything without a barcode. So there have been instances of things that really totally changed the world. When we got back in the business after I sold All Points, Mike and I were sort of religious about trying to find that thing that you know was like the barcode or like the container. First thing we thought about was, well, we need to have something to do. So we found a WNS company that was in bankruptcy, and, and I, I acquired it. I think I was the only bidder. I think I paid $50,000 for it. But, you know, it had some customers, it had some software, and I just figured whatever was the case, we'd figure out what to do with it. What, what solution and was that? And so there's a company called InfoScan. Believe okay. it or not, it was, <laughs> it was out of Minneapolis. It was on three Kilobrew Drive. So, of course, I had to buy it because, you know, Harmon Kilobrew, number three for the Minnesota Twins, I was a huge fan. You know, I just, we bought it and... I remember I got a call from the bankruptcy trustee. He says, congratulations, you won the business. And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> so uh, what do you do now, right? It's like the dog who caught, caught the car. So I flew out there and I walked in and, you know, there were still half-eaten sandwiches on the desk because I guess when they shut the thing down, they just told everybody to go home. So I put the business, I, I shipped everything back to Boston and uh, set up in my basement of my home and we pulled apart the software. We literally had to break into the computers because we didn't have any passwords or anything. And that was in the days when it was easier to do than it is now, but we did it. And then we went to the customer base and I told all the customers, hey, look guys, I, I really need you to sign this contract so I can support you. And they all did. And I got all my money back very fast. And then we started trying to operate that business. And it was actually a pretty good run we made some money we actually resurrected some old all points customers so we had some more revenue coming in and it was around that time maybe 2006 that somebody called me called me up and said hey bruce there's this company that makes robots for warehousing and he said they're looking for money and they're selling units investor units for you know fifty thousand bucks and i said you know robots and warehouses and of course, I had this image of, you know, Rosie, like from the Jetsons. I'm thinking, these aren't going to work. So I said, no, I'm not interested. And about two years later, I got an, another phone call from somebody who said, there's these robots in this warehouses. You should look, really look at them. And it was the same company. So I said, okay, well, you know, I have some amount of confidence in these people. So if they're telling me I should do it, I should go do it. So I tried to go. I went to visit Kiva and um, met with the CEO and I just asked if I could see it live somewhere and I said, nope, can't see any customer sites. And I was sort of upset about that and shocked about that because I thought, well, of course I'm going to buy something if I can't see it in action. I'm not going to recommend it to somebody if I can't see it in action. And at this time, we, Mike and I were just sort of thinking, okay, we've got a new WMS company, but what's the holy grail here. What's the thing we really, really want to do? So I called a bunch of people I knew and finally, and this is, you know, I don't even think Kiva knows this story, but I'll tell you, I'll tell it to you. They'll find out if they're, if they listen to this podcast. But I found a guy who knew the a customer, the only customer at Kiva, which was Staples at the time. And they were down in uh, Pennsylvania, Southern Pennsylvania. And he could get me in for a tour. So 
I went down with him and he was doing some other work for Staples. So he had a connection there and they let me in and I wandered around and took some notes and I was just blown away by the way the Kiva system worked. And I came back to Michael and I said, Michael, I have an idea, but I did this a lot. I'd say, you know, I got to sit down and don't think I'm crazy. Okay. But here's what, here's what I think we should do. I think we should take our WMS. We should stop supporting our other customers. We just give them the source code and they can do with it what they want. You and I should take the WMS and we should buy some robots from Kiva and we should build our own warehouse and we should go out and become a fulfillment company. And of course, you know, Mike didn't, he didn't seem averse to the idea, but Mike's not the kind of guy that would take a strong stand on, you know, he, well, he was more like the guy that would say, well, if you want to do it, I'm up for it. So we did it. And I went to Kiva and I borrowed some money from my private equity buddies. Actually, I took an investment from them. And we put a half a million dollars into it and we bought 10 robots. And we decided to call it Quiet Logistics. The reason we called it Quiet Logistics because one day we were standing above, you know, the Kiva floor and on a little balcony looking down at the robots and they were electric and they were quiet. They were just kind of ghosting around the facility. And I said, geez, it's quiet in here. We do this, we should call our company Quiet Logistics. And Mike sort of laughed and said, yeah, sounds, sounds good to me. So that's what we did. And then we took our little WMS company and we morphed it, we pivoted, and we became Quiet Logistics. That was in 2009. So with Quiet, we, we were fortunate to get a customer right away that knew Mike and me, uh, believe it or not, from our experience at drugstore.com. And the company was called Guilt Group, and they were selling apparel. And you may remember that in 2008, the world just ceased to exist. Business went in the tank. And all, all these companies that sold apparel, mostly high-end apparel, had huge amounts of inventory, and they, they had no cash. And Guilt Group came along, and it was what they call a flash sale model. And they would take all this inventory from these companies, and they would um, sell it at a huge discount on a website. It was members only. And so our guilt group hired us to do their fulfillment. And all we were at that time was 10 robots in about 20,000 square feet, which is tiny in the world of warehousing. But it got us on the map and guilt group grew like crazy for the next two or three years. And so did we. And we went from one warehouse, it grew from 20 to 40 to 60,000. Then we added another warehouse we had in another warehouse. Pretty soon we had 200,000 square feet. And we had a reputation and we knew all the apparel companies. So you may remember, you know, in 1997, 1998, when I met with this guy, Paul Goodrich, Amazon was a startup. So was e-commerce in general. People didn't think about it. They didn't know about it. There was a mail order sector, but in general, People weren't that concerned about e-commerce. Most of the big companies like Walmart and Target just thought of it as a pain, something that, that their customers wanted. Nobody thought much of Amazon because it was losing so much money. I mean, nobody had ever lost more money than Amazon, even though they were growing like crazy. And all these sort of mature, middle-aged executives who had been trying to eke every penny out of 
supply chain for all these years were looking at e-commerce and going, you want me to do that? Why would I ever do that? That's 10 times as expensive. And it's really, really complicated. And I just spent my whole life trying to simplify this business and work in container loads and truck loads and full pallets and full cases. And I'm not going to open up a case and pull out an item and ship it to a customer. That's a crazy idea. So the next 10 years was all about people realizing that e-commerce was real. In fact, in 2001, almost all the e-commerce companies failed and went out of business anyway, which further reinforced this sort of boardroom thinking that, you know, we're never going to have to worry about e-commerce. It's just not a thing. But all the while, Amazon and others quietly just grew and grew and grew. So by the time, you know, the end of uh, 2000, you know, 8, 9, 10, in that time frame, the business was just booming. And everybody wanted to buy stuff online. We still hadn't figured out the profitable uh, aspect. And I'm, I'm not convinced even today in 2020 that we figured that out. But we certainly have a huge percentage of retail now going through the e-commerce channel. And Quiet was sort of born right when all that started to take off. And because we were in apparel through Guilt Group, we started seeing lots of other apparel companies in the space that were you know, needing e-commerce. So the next thing you know, all the Guild Group customers are coming to us and asking us to ship for them to do their e-commerce. So we sort of lucked into that and we picked up some really big accounts. Uh, we got Zara, which I think is the largest, maybe second largest clothing company in the world now and helped them open up the US. And uh, we bought more and more robots. We ended up with 200 Kiva robots from our beginning of 10. So we lucked into that and things were pretty rosy. Right about that time, 2012, um, when the company had gone from really being a startup to being a, an industry player, uh, we got some pretty bad news. One day, sort of in early 2012, we had a, a group of executives from Amazon come through our warehouse and Kiva toured them around and showed them how we did things. And we were quite proud of it. You know, we had a lot of work, robots, a couple hundred, and things were really, really operating smoothly by that time. And we were told by Kiva that this was Amazon's tour of our building because Amazon wanted to buy some Kiva robots. So we thought that they would become a customer of Kiva. Of course, we were feeling pretty good, like showing Amazon around. We put out the red carpet for them. But then uh, a couple months later, I got a phone call from one of the guys over at Kiva a guy named Jerome Dubois, and he very politely and curtly informed me that Amazon had just acquired Kiva. So that was probably, in my career, one of my worst days. And I immediately called Michael. I remember I received a call in my driveway of my home, and I received, and I called Michael from my car, and I spoke with him for two or three hours. I didn't get out of my car, and it was March, so it was cold. And we were saying, what do we do? This is, I think, I mean, I know the dates because they're memorialized in my head, but also there's a Harvard Business School case study written about this particular event. And it was March 19th that I received that call from Jerome and the, and the Wall Street Journal came out with the article. So then for the next 16 months, 
we were trying to figure out what to do. And we sort of worked with Kiva guys and everything was normal and they were all pumped up and excited. And, and then after a while, they, we started asking them for commitments around things like long-term contracts and guarantees of service and stuff like that. And, and they kept becoming harder and harder conversations that had no resolution and everything was deferred and Amazon wouldn't commit to anything. And pretty soon we started to think, well, this doesn't feel so good. So around the end of the next summer, so this was, again, 16 months of uncertainty in the August of 2014, of 2013, Amazon finally pulled the plug on the Kiva service and said that everybody was on an end of life cycle. Whereas a lot of people that have heard the story imagine it was sort of like Monday you're here, Amazon acquired Kiva and Tuesday you're you're turned off. But the truth was there was a lot of time and, and we had a lot of chances to talk about what to do next. One of the things we had considered was was building our own robot. Of course, we were software people, but we were also logistics people and most people would think that's counterintuitive that you could then become a robot company. But we had a lot of confidence in our understanding of tech because over the years we've interfaced with so many different software products. Um, and hardware products on the warehouse floor that we just kind of felt like we just were, were good at that. So we started playing with robots, but we kept thinking, you know, this is going to be a big capital game. We don't have enough capital to build a robot. This is going to be, we're going to run into Kiva's patents. We don't know what Amazon's going to do. And so we didn't really do much during that 16 month period. But then once Amazon took the product off the market, we got very serious about trying to solve the problem. And I figured the best thing to do was to find a different robot. So I jumped on an airplane. I flew around the world, started in Boston, ended in Boston. And I stopped in on the way in all the big centers of excellence for robotics, Canada, West Coast, Japan, China, so on. And um, visited as many robot companies as I could find. And that was pretty much my month of September. And I came home and I said to Michael first, hey, Michael, we, there's nobody that has a robot, anything that, like what we need. Furthermore, if we did work with one of them, we would modify their system so much that it, it would be uh, worth a billion dollars and they would have learned everything we learn and then they could possibly sell their company to Amazon and we'd be in the same spot. So I said, let's, let's just build our own. And he looked at me funny and said, well, if you're up for it, I'm up for it. So we decided to do that. The first thing we did is we had Michael's son, Sean Johnson, who was a student, build us a little kit robot. That took him only about a week. And then we asked him to put some Wi-Fi on it. We asked him to put a faster chip on it. He did that. And, um, you know, pretty impressive for a 17-year-old. And then I said, we can do this. So then over the course of the next six to eight months, we worked really, really hard as using as much off the shelf as we could. And we, we hired a bunch of robot, roboticists, robot experts to round out our team. And we started a little skunk works project. In about eight months, we were, we were making picks in a test environment. And we ended up making our first pick in November of 2015. So that was from August, 2014 to November of 2015, we made our 2015. We made our 
first production pick a little over 14 months. Then in like 2016 or so, 2015, we decided that Locust needed to be a separate company. We call these robots, Locust Robots. So we split Quiet and Locust into two separate businesses. Since then, things have gotten a little bit complicated because we have now have two businesses with one holding company and we decided that we should sell Quiet. We had conflicts of interest because Locust was selling robots to Quiet's competitors. So we thought we had to put Quiet on the market. So we sold Quiet at the beginning of 2019 and focused all of our efforts on Locust. So Locust has actually continued to grow quite strongly. Now we have, well, I like to say, we have double the number of customers and quadruple the number of sites that Kiva had when Amazon bought Kiva. So it's a real business and very, very successful now. It's just announced last week it did its 250 millionth pick. So there's a lot of people using it, a lot of really big name companies and a lot of smaller companies. So that's where we are. I'm curious, and I haven't read the articles from Harvard Business Review or Wall Street Journal about the acquisition, uh, Amazon acquires Kiva. But I teach, I teach supply chain at, you know, for adult education at universities. And I, and I tell them, I think that was a, a strategic business decision by Amazon. Am I telling a story there or making things up or did they do it because they just wanted robots for productivity? Or did Amazon do it to impact the business of, for example, Staples, you know, by not saying you can't use the robots anymore? Well, I used to think that Amazon was evil and I always liked, I always attributed evil to their intent. But over the years, I came to the conclusion that Amazon's really not evil. They're just maniacal about growth and maniacal about taking care of their, taking care of their customers. And they really didn't do this to hurt anybody. They just did it to help themselves. And they do have this sort of tremendous ability to like not think about other people. And I suppose that's one of their gifts. They're just not like a egalitarian, let's, you know, kumbaya and share. They're just much more about, you know, we got a problem, we need to solve it. And when they went to acquire Kiva, it was purely to solve their logistics problem, which honestly, you know, I, the reason we bought Kiva was the same reason it wasn't like I thought Kiva was going to make us more money or give us a better competitive position. My feeling about Kiva was it just allowed us to do the job. I mean, it was really hard to do this. If you think about, you know, I described the problem in the terms of, you know, it's grocery shopping. It just, it's grocery shopping at scale. Or instead of having one order with 50 items, you have 30,000 orders with 250,000 items. And you somehow have to get all those in the right box shipped out to the right location, to the right home. And you can't make any mistakes because people get really upset when, when you order one thing and they order one thing and you ship them another thing. Or when you don't ship them the thing they ordered at all. So Amazon looked at this and said, you know, we're, we're gonna collapse under our own weight if we don't get this under control. So they bought Kiva to solve their problem. And although, you know, it'd be very easy for me to have the persecution complex and go, they did it just to put me out of business or just to put staples out of business or whatever. That's just not the way they operate. They're just totally obsessed with making their customers happy. 
Well, one thing, you know, I've, I've always heard the quote, necessity is the mother of an invention. And that's kind of where locusts came from, if, I, you know, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? I mean, because if, they, if you could have kept having Kiva, then you wouldn't have needed to create your own. Absolutely correct. I'm glad it worked out the way it did, though, because, you know, once we sort of had that 16-month interregnum and not knowing what was going to happen with our robots, we, we started a list of things we didn't like about Kiva, and we kept learning more and more about how to use them. And we came to the conclusion that Kiva was not the perfect solution, and it's still too expensive. We still didn't crack the profit problem. It's pretty inflexible. It also doesn't really fit well into existing warehouses. You have to tear things out to put, to put Kiva in, and that's particularly hard to do when you're operating a business that you know, works 24-7 anyway. And um, the robots were less reliable over time because they were a new product. You know, they first worked perfectly, but then as they started to wear out, they started to break down. There were just many things about it that we kept thinking could have been done better. And when we started Locus, we sort of had this, you know, these two lists. We had the list of things we liked about Kiva and the things we didn't like about Kiva. And as we thought about designing Locus, we said, what can we do to fix all the things that we don't like and keep all the things we do like? And that was tremendously informative because when we brought in these engineers, you know, a lot of people think that engineers are like students that don't like to be constrained. They like to think openly. And, but the truth is when you have an engineer and you give them a very defined problem, they really go to town on it. They love constrained problems. So we actually put our programmers our, and our electrical engineers and our roboticists in the warehouse. We, we, co we curtained off a, a corner of the warehouse in the cold and the heat and the humidity and the dust. That's where they worked. And the reason is we said, here's the problem you have to solve and here's what you are, here are the things we want you to do and here are the things we don't want you to do. And if you don't understand something, just go in there and ask the guy how he does it. And wow, that sort of cut our development time by a factor of 10 probably. And that's why we got such a good result. So yeah, definitely necessity is a mother of invention. But you know, we really had a problem, and everybody still has the problem today. This concludes the part one discussion with Bruce Welty. Stay tuned for part two where Bruce discusses his vision of warehouse automation, autonomous mobile robots, and more of X paradox. Supply Chain is Boring is part of the Supply Chain Now network. We highlight historical events, companies, and people in supply chain management and create a picture of where the industry is headed. Interested in learning more about supply chain technology startups, mergers, acquisitions, and how companies evolve? Take a listen to Tequila Sunrise, crafted by Greg White. Or check out This Week in Business History with Supply Chain Now's own Scott Luton to learn more about everyday things you may take for granted and pick up short stories you can use as general conversation starters. The Logistics with a Purpose series puts a spotlight on neat and interesting organizations who are working toward a greater cause. If you're interested in logistics, freight, and transportation, take a listen to the Logistics and Beyond series with the Adapt and Thrive Mindset Sherpa, Jamin Alvarez. And check out the newest program, Tech Talk, hosted by industry veteran and Atlanta's own, Corinne Bursa. 
Versa will discuss all things digital supply chain. If interested in sponsoring this show or others on Supply Chain Now, send a note to chris at supplychainnow.com. And remember, supply chain is boring. tell you've done this before i've i've listened to at least three of podcasts that i found already so you are probably the most interviewed person that i've interviewed so far well i have had a lot of interviews i guess getting on 60 minutes yeah i saw that and doing work with <clears throat> doing work with harvard business school i've both been helpful in getting my name out there 